0: The message um, that we're going to talk about today, it can be a little strange for some people. Um, oftentimes, we kind of use communion as an add-on. We're actually going to do it at the end during worship. If, you've never, if you didn't grow up in the church, it's a strange custom. We take little wafers and grape juice, and somehow this is supposed to represent you know, the body of Jesus and his blood. <laughs> Years ago at Calvary Chapel in Rogers, we actually had somebody that would bake one loaf of unleavened bread and we would pass that around, everybody would tear off a piece. And so, okay, it made a little more sense. We were all partaking of that one body of Christ. But in those terms, it almost seems cannibalistic. So it's, it's a little strange. Then you get to Catholicism and if you guys want a Bible, raise your hand. You'll need it at the end. Um, But uh, Catholicism actually teaches the, the doctrine of transubstantiation, that that's where the elements literally become the body and blood of Jesus. So if it wasn't a weird practice before, it really is now. Today we're going to look at the events surrounding the Last Supper and see what communion was and what Jesus intended it to be. And even if, uh, hopefully it's a review for all of you. I I really hope that's what this is. But even if it's a review, I hope God expands our thoughts a little bit about what he intended when he said, do this in remembrance of him. This isn't gonna be verse by verse. I know it's blasphemous in Calvary Chapel. Um, We're gonna get to the Bible, don't worry. But I'm gonna give a broad overview of the events surrounding that last supper. We're gonna take a thousand foot view uh, of those events. So to start with, what is communion? Well, if you look up the definition, it says this. The service of Christian worship at which bread and wine are consecrated and shared. Okay, that part we know. You know, if you've been going to church for 10 minutes, you get that. But what is it? Communion, it's a token. It's a small part of the whole. It's an outward representation of something more. When Jesus said in Matthew 26 and Luke 22, that we were to do this in remembrance of him, he was pointing at something much deeper, something more elaborate than eating a little wafer and drinking some juice. But he also didn't say that the juice and the wafer become him. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to remember him. He would be right in front of us. So what exactly is a token? Well, there's game tokens. My son, Ben, loves arcades, so he's into those. There's tokens of affection, tokens of esteem, There are even tokens in the criminal world. We're not gonna talk about those. So here's what Webster says. (laughs) Webster defines token as this, an outward sign or expression, a small part representing the whole. The first thing that came to mind when I thought of this concept was a key to the city. In, In ancient medieval times, the practice actually came about because you had walled cities with gates. The key to the city represented the city's trust in you to be able to come and go from that city. In modern times, we have these presentations given this really big key to to someone as a token of the city's esteem. And of course, you can search online and figure out why these are given out, and so I did because I wanted to waste 10 minutes of my life. Um, Some are actors and actresses that brought recognition to the community. Okay, I can get behind that. Some are homegrown singers that made the town famous. That makes sense. Mayors that did a really good job. Okay. Corona, California. Oh, Corona. They gave a key to the city to a cat for being the tallest cat in the Guinness Book of World Records. (laughs) I wish I was making that up. Here's the thing, though. That key, the really big one that you get in the presentation, it doesn't do anything. If the cops find you breaking into a business in the middle of the night and they're like, hey, what are you doing? Don't worry. I got the key to the city. It's not going to work. You're going to go to jail. The key is just a token of the city's appreciation. It symbolizes something. It's an outward sign of inner gratitude. It's a small part that represents the whole. As we start looking at the Last Supper events, keep in mind this idea of token. This idea that Jesus was using something very small to represent something so much bigger. Jesus doesn't want us focusing on the bread and the wine. He wants to draw our attention to something more, something deeper. Communion will be the key to the city of understanding that right relationship with Jesus. So to set the stage for this, we have to go back to Luke 19, where we get the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Jesus had been telling his disciples that they would go to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. You guys don't need to turn there. I will tell you when you need to turn. It's not verse by verse. Everybody's twitching right now. Patrick listening online is twitching right now. It's going to be okay. Jesus had been telling his disciples that they have to go to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They had been previously, they'd been skirting around Jerusalem, going around the outskirts um, because the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus and it wasn't his time yet. Jesus kept trying to tell his disciples that this trip, this last trip into Jerusalem was going to end in his death, but they never understood. So as they get close to Jerusalem... Jesus sends a couple disciples into town and he says, hey, you're going to find a donkey, colt, tied to a post. And I need that. So go and borrow it. And if anybody says, hey, why are you borrowing the donkey? Tell them that the Lord has need of it. I don't suggest you try this without the Lord telling you, or again, you might wind up in jail. The theme here. We know from Zechariah nine, 9 that this was fulfilled prophecy. For Jesus to enter into the city riding, not just on a donkey, which wouldn't have been out of the ordinary in that time, but on a colt, very specific in Zechariah. People are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's a party when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. People are spreading clothes on the ground. They're putting palm branches down. It's an amazing and awesome time as Jesus comes into the city. But didn't we just say that they had been avoiding Jerusalem because the Pharisees wanted him dead? How then does he come into this hero's welcome? People are fickle, especially in groups. Play the part of the disciple this morning because that's hopefully what each of you are. What would you be thinking right now as Jesus came into Jerusalem? Finally, I cast my lot with Jesus. His kingdom is coming true. We've been broken destitute for three years, but now the people are seeing what we see. They're seeing that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the promised Messiah. Finally, he's going to be crowned king. Wait, 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 wait. If Jesus is the king and we're his right-hand guys, well, we're practically royalty, right? Think I'm wrong? When you get time, read in the book of Luke from 19 to the end of the chapter and see the awkward conversations that the disciples have with Jesus about who's the greatest. This emotional high sets up the stage for the Last Supper just a couple days later. Without getting into the weeds, most scholars have Jesus entering Jerusalem on Sunday and he's not crucified until Friday. He comes and goes from Jerusalem to Bethany a few times, culminating with him eating the Passover or the Last Supper with his disciples Thursday night into Friday morning. Here's why this is important. There is a lot, a lot that happens in Jesus's and the disciples' lives in those few short days. When I think of the Last Supper, sometimes I have Leonardo da Vinci's painting in my mind. We had a little picture kind of thing of that in my house growing up. So when I think of the Last Supper, I think of the table and Jesus at the center and all the disciples around, and I think of that one point in time, and I don't think about all the things leading up to that meal. What were the disciples thinking while they were eating that meal? Where was their focus? What did they really think the next day would bring? God gives us a lot of detail about these events for a reason, He wants us to dissect and analyze these things. He wants us to use our brains. So place yourself there with disciples in that week. You just saw Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You've already seen him do hundreds, if not thousands of miracles. Do you honestly think there is anything that he's not capable of right now? Of course not. Jesus is our Messiah, Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. Jesus is about to go son of God on these Pharisees and these Romans and I get to be ringside for the action. Yes, amen, right? I'm gonna list in no particular order just some of the things that happened after Jesus came into Jerusalem that week. Jesus cleanses the temple of the money changers. He makes a fig tree wither and die. Jesus argues with the Pharisees in the temple about his authority being directly from God. Jesus teaches multiple parables to the masses. He gives us tax advice, always helpful. He answers the Sadducees about the resurrection of the dead. He tells in great detail about him dying on the cross and the simile with Jerusalem's own destruction and the temple being torn down. By the way, the stones are at the base of the temple mount to this day. And Jesus teaches about his second coming again in great detail. That's a lot of stuff in just a couple days. And it's not the whole list. From Jesus' perspective, this was his last chance to impart some wisdom to his disciples while he is physically with them. But if you're one of the disciples, Jesus already teaches all the time. But he seemed to have turned it up a notch this week. I have trouble keeping up with him on a good day. And now it's like drinking from a fire hose, trying to understand everything he's giving us. Jesus, slow down. I, I, I'm not, I still haven't uh, figured out the, uh, the, parables, the parables from last week. Not even last week, last year. And now you've taught like 10 more. Jesus, it's too much. I can't handle it. Jesus is intense in these last few days, and we, a couple thousand years later, we know why. But the disciples didn't. They should have, but they didn't. All this activity must mean that Jesus is about to establish his kingdom, not go to the cross. So we have confusion going into the Passover meal. Maybe Jesus can set the record straight as we move forward. What I didn't mention on my list of events was the plot of the Pharisees to kill Jesus. They'd been trying for a couple years to, to get Jesus, but he was always just out of reach by divine intervention. Not to worry, Judas is your guy. Judas is an anomaly to us. How could someone that walks so closely with Jesus then suddenly turn their back on him? Why would they do that? I've seen and known Christians that have walked with Jesus far more than three and a half years and then turned their back on him. In my own family, people that were once pillars of any church that they went into, led worship, led Bible studies, now their own grandkids don't even know who Jesus is. How does it happen? How could someone allow it to happen? I don't have the answers to that question. But what I do know is that Judas terrifies me. If it can happen to him, it can happen to any one of us. I don't think Judas woke up one day and just decided that Jesus wasn't for him. I think it happens slowly. A little doubt here, a little snide comment there, a little greed left unchecked. Little by little Satan whittled away at his faith. I don't think for one moment that Judas never believed in Jesus. He was there. He partook in the miracles. He knew who Jesus was. It was a slow fade that we all have to be on guard against. But this isn't a teaching about Judas. This is about the Last Supper, and we still haven't gotten to that. So after that long list of events, we get to Jesus preparing for the Passover meal, We know from the Gospel accounts that on the Day of Unleavened Bread, Jesus sent Peter and John to prepare the place to eat the meal. He tells them, go into the city, look for a man carrying water. If you're a uh, studier of Jewish culture, you know that that's very odd. It wasn't the men that carried water in that society. It was the women. It was the servants. This would have stood out. It was different when you find that guy, ask him where my upper room is so that we can eat our meal. That's pretty audacious. The accounts don't tell us, but God obviously spoke to the homeowner uh, before their arrival. I think of uh, Cornelius the centurion sending his servants for, to meet Simon Peter at Simon the Tanner's house because that's not confusing. God talked to people on both ends. So they go and they find this upper room completely furnished and set up for the Passover meal. That's amazing. What, what were Peter and John thinking when they had to go out and have this conversation? Jesus comes to them and he goes, hey, go prepare a meal, a very important meal, by the way, in a town that you don't live in with no funds. Thanks, Jesus, that's easy. As they started to go out and look I would love to have been there for their conversation between Peter and John. We know they had some great conversations that are recorded in scripture. This one's not. So imagine them going out and asking, why are we looking for some dude carrying water? Why isn't this guy having his servants carry the water? What loser is Jesus having us go talk to? He does know we're almost royalty, right? Right? whatever they were thinking, they go and they find it just as Jesus said it would be. And so then in the chronology of events, we have the disciples and Jesus meeting in that upper room. Very smart and godly men have debated about the timeline of that upper room discourse um, ever since it's been written down. If you compare the Gospel of John to the other Gospels, the timelines don't line up exactly. There's answers to this. You have to study it and find the answers. I mention it because I'm not going into the weeds of the timeline, so you can do that on your own. John chapter 13 lets us know that once they get to that upper room, one of the first things that happens is Jesus washes the disciples' feet. We also know that the meal had already started. Again, if you study Jewish culture, it makes sense. It's not like Americans. We sit down at 6 o'clock, we eat, 6.20, we're up, you know, whatever. Whatever. Passover meal started at sundown and went all the way to sunrise. Hours that they would spend consuming this meal together. So very normal that they would eat multiple times through that night. The other gospel accounts, they start with Jesus talking about his betrayal. But God impresses upon John to include this detail. If you were washing the feet of a guest, it meant you were pretty poor. This would have, again, been a job for a servant in that culture, maybe a girl of the house. But now we've seen two glaring examples of Jesus trying to show these disciples they weren't above being the servant of everyone. First, they met the man carrying water that was wealthy enough to have this upper room completely furnished and set aside for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That man, he was a servant. Second, now their own teacher the man they think is going to be their king is washing their feet. There should be no argument over who is the greatest when Jesus is washing your feet. Are you ever going to be too good, too important, too self-absorbed to not follow his example? Peter says to Jesus, never, never shall you wash my feet. looks Jesus in the eye and says that. And that indicates that this was the first time Jesus had done this, right? If Jesus had done this before, Peter would have said, Jesus, we've talked about this. You're not washing my feet again. It's weird. He doesn't say that. Never shall you wash my feet. We see Jesus do something out of the ordinary, something unusual. He takes on the role of a lowly servant and washes the feet of those disciples. But Peter, he looked at Jesus and says, no, it's not going to happen. What pride, what arrogance to tell the son of God what he will and will not do. Peter had Jesus on a pedestal. And if Jesus stepped off of it and he came down and he washed his feet, that means that Peter worships a foot washer. And Peter's pride wouldn't let him do that. Someone low, someone that isn't acting like a king. But Jesus says, if this doesn't happen, you have no part of me, Peter. You remember Peter's response? Shower, Lord. Wash all of me. Still in pride. Now Peter wants it all. I love Peter in scripture like I love David. I know that I'm one of Jesus's hard cases. Pastor Steve Marquez, he said, God keeps the pastors up front to keep an eye on them. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Had I been in that room, I know I would have said the exact same thing Peter did. I would have been just as wrong as he was. Jesus was simply showing them that no matter how important they thought they were in the future, the greatest disciple will be the servant of all. Jesus was saying you can't lead without being a humble servant. Very simple lesson complicated by human stupidity. Jesus washes all the disciples' feet. Let that sink in. All. All means all. In the Greek, just like it does English. That means he washed Judas's feet. Knowing what, we, what he knew at the time, that he knew all things, and knowing how we are as people, is it any wonder that God had to send his only son to die in our place? No human could be sinless. Judas would have died in two inches of water that night had I been there. I would have drowned him and ended his life. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus washes his feet just like the rest. But he does use some passive aggressive tactics and he says, hey, not all of you are clean. You being a disciple in that room that night, is that an attention getter? Not all of us are clean? Well, which ones? You just washed all our feet? Who? Who are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus? Let the gossip begin, right? I knew Thomas was always doubting. It has to be him. Peter, Peter literally just said more dumb stuff in front of all of us. It's <laughs> got to be that guy. James and John, oh my God, those guys and their mom, they're awful. Surely they're not saved. Your mind would be racing about what Jesus was talking about. But then he tells you, one of you in this room is going to betray me. Christians, look to your right and your left. Go ahead and take a second. Look to your right and left in here. Is it awkward? It's pretty awkward. Which one is it? Who is it? One by one, the men in that room looked at Jesus and said, they they didn't say, surely it's Peter, surely it's Thomas. They looked into Jesus' eyes and they said, surely not I, Lord, Lord. Most of those men realized that they were capable of betraying the friend they loved, yet they hoped with all of their heart that it wasn't them. In 1961, the Nuremberg trials for Adolf Eichmann, a Jewish man named Yehiel Diner, he was brought in for the trial. He had survived Auschwitz under Eichmann. And as he was brought in for the trial, he passed out. That was a stir, Oh my gosh, what happened? They revive him, get him up. Like, what was it? You know, why did you pass out? Was it the horrid memories of Auschwitz? You know, was it, you know, fear and trembling? Was it anger and hatred for this man? I'm going to read his words to you. This is what Neil said. I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he We're human. Yep, some of the most worst atrocities in life have been done by humans, just like us, just like Judas. And in that room, it was awkward. So awkward, in fact, that Peter can't stand it. So he leans over to John, who was next to Jesus, and he says, ask him who it is. No more of this game. No more of me freaking out, thinking it's me. Just ask him who it is. Well, Jesus finally lets the cat out of the bag. He says, it's the one in whom I give this bread after it's been dipped. Things get lost in our English world a little bit. Jewish tradition had them all at a very low table, reclining on their sides on pillows, and they would all be around that table like that together. They all shared the same rack of lamb, the same bread. They would have bowls that they would dip into each other's bowls. That's Jewish tradition. Double dipping, eating with your hands, feet being near someone's head. I'm okay with some traditions changing. Um, Jesus was offering Judas his bread dipped in his bowl. It was a peace offering. Judas, it's not too late to turn back. You don't have to do what you're going to do. This was a huge honor. Scholars talk about the seating in that room, and they realize for this to have taken place, Judas had to be in the place of honor around that table. John was on his other side. Jesus gave him the place of honor, gave him the honored bread, gave him every chance to turn back. But Judas' heart was made up. Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, What you intend to do, do quickly. And we know from John that none of the disciples understood what had just happened. Even though Jesus said, it's the one who I give this bread to. He does this, and they still don't get it. That means, Christians, they were still wondering if they were the ones to betray Jesus in that room. That's why later on, you have this conversation with Peter where he said he's going to follow Jesus unto death. And Jesus says, no, you won't. You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. In fact, much later in the night, they can't even stay up and pray with Jesus in his hour of need. All of the disciples eventually desert Jesus when he's arrested. All of them. One of them runs away naked. Nobody wanted to fess up to who it was, but one of them ran away naked. Naked. They were all capable of being right where Judas was, but for the grace of God, they weren't. Sometime after the meal had started, we have Jesus draw their attention to the bread and to the wine. They've already been eating, but now it's different. Jesus is signaling something special. So turn over to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look at a couple verses there, and then we'll be over in Luke 22 for a minute. Matthew 26, it'll be verses 26 to 29. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took some of the bread. After blessing it, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now flip over to the right and go to Luke 22. We'll be in verses 14 to 20. Verses 14 to 20 says this. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And we had taken of the cup and given thanks. He said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And we had taken some of the bread and given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So obviously this is the section that we take our communion tradition from. We get the tradition straight from Jesus. He pauses the dinner. He draws the attention to the bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to the disciples. This represents my body Give him for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he does the same thing with the cup, except it's not his body, it's his blood poured out for this new covenant that will be in his blood. Now think about all of the things that we've been talking about up to this point. People being healed this week, parables being taught, arguments with Pharisees and Sadducees, finding random donkeys that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, Some guy has a room prepared before you even talk to him. Jesus just washed y'all's feet. Judas may or may not have been in the room at this point. Again, discussion on that. Then Jesus throws this bomb into the middle of the room. This bread represents my broken body. This wine, it represents my blood. By the way, this new covenant, it's going to be sealed in my blood. What happened to the triumphal entry? What happened to the kingdom being established and we're all royalty? What happened to Judas and why isn't he back yet? There would be a thousand questions questions running through your mind. And there were a thousand questions running through the disciples' minds. How do we reconcile the Messiah establishing his kingdom with Jesus telling us that his body is going to be broken and bloody? They keep talking after this and they have the upper room discourse. One of the most intimate parts of scripture between Jesus and his disciples. Part of that discussion is who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Part of that discussion is Peter vehemently denying that he would turn his back on Jesus and would follow him unto death. Later that night they're going to fall asleep when Jesus asks them to watch and help pray. Failure after failure. Disappointment after disappointment with these disciples. They did things that night with Jesus that most people would be ashamed of for the rest of their lives. Do you think you've committed sin that Jesus won't forgive? Have you run away when your best friend was being arrested? Did you deny Jesus three times when a scary little girl asked you if you even knew him? On your brother's deathbed, did you argue about who was going to be the greatest when you get to heaven? Some of what happened that night was truly awful. Judas had the audacity to look Jesus in the eyes and say, well, surely not I, Lord. Surely not me. The human brain, it's a very interesting organ. It seems that when I want to remember something, I can't. It's gotten worse as I've gotten older. Yet there are songs, movie quotes, trivia facts. They just rattle around up there without any trouble whatsoever. Triggers can be something that sparks a memory of a traumatic event. When I hear 9-11, I can tell you exactly where I was and what I was doing when I heard the news of the Twin Towers coming down. I, don't, I didn't choose to remember that. It's just because of how our brains operate and how we store facts. I can remember my mom's death, Christmas Day 2005. My family and I gathered around in her hospital room, the hours we had been there, just waiting, just knowing that the end was coming. That day is locked in my memory. I didn't try to remember it. Place yourself in the disciples' shoes once more. Jesus gave you this ordinance to observe moving forward, a token to remind you of that night. That night that you didn't understand any of what he was telling you. That night where you argued with the other disciples about who was going to be the greatest. That night where you denied even knowing him. That night that you let him down by falling asleep when you should have been praying. That night that one of your own betrayed him unto death. There is serious danger here of communion being a trigger. Week after week, month after month, dredging up memories the disciples would rather forget. How many of us come to the communion table and we know we're not right before the Lord? That there's sin or some way that we've let Jesus down this week? Our mind starts racing about all the sins that need to be confessed before we partake of the wafer and the juice. After all, 1 Corinthians says that people died when they didn't take it seriously, right? Jesus never intended communion to be a trigger. No, he didn't. He wanted it to be a token. A small part of something larger. Something to remind us of something greater. So Jesus gave us a very specific command with this tradition. Do this... In remembrance of me. Unlike human memory, the focus isn't supposed to be on us, guys. It's supposed to be on Jesus and what he did and what he continues to do. I have a feeling that the disciples struggled with a lot of condemnation after that night. Then they saw the cru- crucifixion the next day and they wondered if it was all over. But when Jesus was raised to life three days later, when they hugged him, when they ate and drank with him, were again taught by him, when they had breakfast with him on the beach on the Sea of Galilee, the glory of the revealed Christ drowned out any condemnation they once had. Jesus looking them in the face and telling them he forgave them made all those bad memories go away all their shortcomings, all their failures, all their inadequacies, it was all gone. It was literally all gone as far as the east is from the west. But it only applies to those that put their faith in Christ. For those that, like Judas, have decided the world has far more to offer, their sins aren't forgiven. It's just a simple fact. Jesus kept giving Judas opportunities to repent and he wouldn't take them. He chose not to. If you're sitting here today and you don't know where you stand with Jesus, figure out where you are in the story. Are you a disciple that messed up but trusts in Jesus' forgiveness? I hope so. Or are you Judas and everything looks great on the outside, but inside you're dead? The disciples in that room struggled to know which one they were. The difference came three days later. Judas, he ran and hung himself. The disciples, they ran to Jesus. Jesus gave us the key to the city, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, that we get to be with him for all eternity. Communion is just a token, reminding us of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, a reminder that he paid the ultimate price because we can't a reminder that his love and grace are limitless and we can't ever mess up bad enough to separate us from the love of god a reminder that this life that night in the upper room isn't all there is praise god for that there is so much more for those who place their faith in jesus our sins are gone remembered no more because of Jesus' sacrifice So here's the challenge today. We're gonna sing a couple songs here at the end. Open table, come up and partake on your own. And here's the challenge. Rather than sitting there thinking about yourself, thinking about how horrible you are, how good you are, think about Jesus. Only Jesus. And do this in remembrance of him. Not of you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that we get to boldly come before your throne. That it's not a priest or somebody that we go through to talk to you, that we get to talk to you directly because we have an advocate, your son that died in our place. And that when you look at us and we go, Lord, uh, all the sins I've committed and you go, what sins? I don't know what sins you're talking about. All I see is my son. (sighs) Lord, wipe our memories clean this morning. Help us to put out the distractions of this world, the distraction that happens outside these walls and focus in narrowly, specifically, and 100% on you, your death, your burial, your resurrection, that you loved us enough to die in our place, that we get to have assurance of our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life because of this. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that we get to be here as brothers and sisters and we get to have fellowship. Be with us in these closing moments and help us to have our focus on you. Amen.